0: Good morning. It's my pleasure to read from this morning from the uh, uh, third chapter of Habakkuk, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes me He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread uh, on my high places to the choirmaster with stringed instruments. Heavenly Father, God, as we take these next few moments and we open your word, I pray. As I do so often, especially maybe this morning, God, I pray that we would hear your word. And the manner in which we view our lives and the world, circumstances, would be changed in light of what we know of you. And may we always remember, just as we sang such a wonderful phrase. Why should we gain from your reward? We cannot give an answer. But this we know with all our heart, that his wounds have paid our ransom. God, I pray that it would be so. We would stand in your grace this morning as we hear from your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You have no doubt seen, whether you see on the screen or you see on your notes before you. We are going to do something this morning that possibly you have never experienced before. um, And that is that we are going to go through an entire book of the Bible in the next few minutes. Um, You think I'm joking. The the thing is, what I want you to do is I know you've had so many quiet times out of the book of Habakkuk. If you struggle to find it, go simply to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then move backwards. Um, you will be in Malachi, then you'll be in Zechariah, then you'll be in Haggai, then Zephaniah, then Habakkuk. I also would like to say this, um, that I know in Hebrew it is pronounced Habakkuk, but I am not going to pronounce it that way because I am a redneck from southeast Texas, and so <laughs> I will pronounce it Habakkuk this morning. See, so the Hebrews and many cultures put great stock in someone's name and the meaning of someone's name. Um, And I believe that Habakkuk is no different. That's why I entitled this morning's sermon, Embracing God's Work. Because the name Habakkuk in Hebrew means to embrace or to wrestle. The prophet Habakkuk lived and prophesied during the last few years of Judah before Babylon overthrew Judah around 605 B.C., He and the prophet Jeremiah were really the last two prophets to live and prophesy uh, to Judah uh, before the Babylonian invasion. Kind of a final warning, if you will. We don't know much about Habakkuk, except that he was, in fact, identified as a prophet. But we can also, I think, firmly say that he had something to do with temple worship. I don't know if that means he was a Levite or what, but I do know this, as Brother Barry read just a moment ago. um, It says at the very end... ...to the choir master according to or on my stringed instruments. And so he had something to do with temple worship. We don't know what that is. We don't know much about him. Many of the other minor prophets, we may know uh, their name. We know where they're from. We even know what they did. But for Habakkuk, we do not know those things. Now, as we look at the name Habakkuk, meaning to embrace, it is extremely appropriate... Because the book of Habakkuk, even though maybe you've you've read it, I'm sure, but the book of Habakkuk, unlike any of the other minor prophets, or major prophets really, uh, the, the prophets would hear a message from the Lord. Maybe they would talk back to the Lord a little bit, but then they would address the people and say, thus says the Lord God, or something to that nature. Habakkuk is the only one where he never addresses the people. This is simply three chapters of a conversation between God and the prophet. And as we look at this, it's important to notice that Habakkuk struggles to embrace God's plan and God's work. That's why I entitled it Embracing God's Work. He he struggles to embrace God's work and then at the end he ultimately embraces God. He embraces God and his sovereignty. Uh, There are those who have referred to Habakkuk as the Doubting Thomas of the Old Testament and that is because he spends his entire time overwhelmed by all the events surrounding him, he's drowning in hopelessness, he's crying out to God about all the injustice and the evil uh, that he sees, and he's struggling and questioning God's motives. He, seems, he believes that it is possible that God is just inactive, or that God is simply indifferent to suffering and pain. He is asking God, do you really actually care what is happening? Do you really care about the pain that we are experiencing? Now this morning, there are those who question God's character and ask questions like, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, then why does He allow evil to exist? Why doesn't He just end it? Those who approach God this way tend to come to the conclusion that one, either God is all-powerful and He could fix it and he doesn't and so he is himself evil. Or God is not all powerful and because of this he's just not capable of fixing it and therefore he is not worthy to be worshipped. Or third, simply that God does not exist. Because if a God did exist, he would take care of these things. So it is in fact the problem of evil Understanding the problem of evil in theological circles, maybe you've heard this term, but it's the term theodicy. It means how does God and evil, how do they interact? How why do they coexist? And that's the issue. You think that's a new issue today? Like people say, well, if there's so much injustice, injustice and evil in the world, how can God, a good God, exist? But the truth is, Habakkuk was asking that question all those many years ago. And when we looked at it, or when we look at it, what we find is. There are even those who are believers. Believers struggle to understand what God is doing when things are bad, when people are suffering, when people die, when tragedy strikes, or when evil seems to run rampant and unchecked. Seeing everything around us and watching so much tragedy and so much heartache, or feeling it uh, personally, it can drive us to a place of questioning, of uncertainty. The struggle to understand can take us to a place where our soul, as the psalmist said, is downcast within us. When God's people, when his church struggles for years, it can leave us questioning. Is this you this morning? Is are you questioning God? Do you know someone who is or has struggled? Are you questioning God's goodness, God's power? Or His wisdom? Is your soul troubled within you? I want to tell you this morning, it is possible to move from troubled to triumphant. It is possible to move from troubled to triumphant. And we'll see that path with Habakkuk this morning. And as we move from troubled to triumphant, there are some things we see in the story of Habakkuk that are oh so true for us today. Now many times we will say things like, uh, people will miss, uh, you, you may miss the point, you may misunderstand the, the main truth or something to the effect of, you may be missing the forest for the trees. And with Habakkuk, he was staring so much at the individual issues and problems of the day that he missed the big picture. And the first thing we see in the book of Habakkuk is that staring at the problem means not discerning his purpose. Staring at the problem means not discerning his purpose. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 1, it begins by saying an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This word oracle is really interesting because the word is literally burden. Your translation might actually say that. It's the burden of Habakkuk. It's because this prophecy that he receives from God, it weighs on him heavily. It it causes him frustration and difficulty. So it is a burden to carry. He says this is a burden to him. And then Habakkuk begins. In the first two chapters, really, Habakkuk begins to question God. He begins to question God's power, God's goodness, God's motives, God's character or God's wisdom. He says in verse two. 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth. Perverted. Uh, So Habakkuk is having an issue. (laughs) He's got a problem. He's seeing some things around him. Now, it's one thing to see the problem, but there's something else going on here with Habakkuk. See, it's one thing to notice the problem. Of course, you would be crazy. I think you would be crazy if you looked out at the world today and said, everything's fine. That's not the the problem. Uh, It's not wrong to look out and say, these things are wrong. There's sin everywhere. There's sin rampantly running. Evil seems to go unchecked. It's nothing wrong to say that, but that's not all Habakkuk says. See, Habakkuk says, why do I see iniquity and, and, and violence are before me and strife and contention? The law is paralyzed and justice goes forth perverted. What, it, what he's saying is is people break the law and no one cares. Uh, and, and whenever we want to see justice, justice doesn't come forth. Um, he's saying all of these things, but here's the, the rub. He says, how long will I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. He's saying, God, I'm calling out and you seem indifferent. You, you, it seems like you don't care. He said, well, how do you know he says that? Because look what he says here in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? He says, God, you see the evil and you're doing nothing That's that's what Habakkuk's saying. He's saying, why God, if you're a good God, are you looking at these things and doing nothing? He's stuck in a place saying, this isn't right God, this just isn't fair God. If you're good, if you're all powerful, he would be saying something like, if you're good, if you're all powerful, why do good people get cancer? Why do young people with Their entire lives before them die tragically. Why are babies born with life-threatening or debilitating medical conditions? Why do we watch people waste away from illnesses like Alzheimer's? Why do people crash planes into towers? Or why are there pandemics that take the lives of the ones we love? Habakkuk is looking around saying, this isn't right, God. People are suffering and you're not doing anything about it. So God answers him. This is the way it happens both times. Habakkuk asks a question, God answers him. But what you'll find very quickly is that God answers him, but he doesn't really answer him. God speaks back to him, but he doesn't really answer Habakkuk's questions either time. But in the end, it's exactly the answer Habakkuk needed. So he asks all these questions. Why does this happen? And then in verse 5, God says, Look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Now, that sounds awesome, right? I mean, God's saying, Hey, look among the nations and be astounded, because I'm about to do something that even if I explained it to you completely, you wouldn't get it. And people, you've heard that verse, I'm certain. You've heard it preached. You've heard it taught. But let me uh, help you understand something. When you apply it and say, so God's about to do something awesome that you're going to be excited about. And it's going to be great. And he's going to pour out blessing untold on you. That is not what this verse says. It is completely taken out of context when it's applied that way. Because listen to what he says. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They, they At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So he says, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. I'm about to do something. I want you to wonder and I want you to be astounded because the thing I'm about to do, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And while that might sound exciting, the very next thing he says is, I'm raising up Babylon to come in and wipe everything out. That doesn't sound like a fun message. You you could stitch verse 5 on a pillow, but you're not going to hit verses 6 through 11. He says, Habakkuk, I'm about to do something. But what does he tell Habakkuk to do? He tells Habakkuk to wonder and be astounded. He's about to do something amazing. See, in God's point of view, he's about to do something amazing. See, he tells them that he's going to do all of these things And then listen to Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. So he understood what God was saying. You've ordained the Babylonians as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Listen to this. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And he continues on. You know what his response is? God, that's not fair. That's not right. I mean, I get what you're saying, but that's not nice. I mean, I was saying that everything's terrible and horrible in Israel and evil was running rampant, so you said you're going to bring someone who's even more evil than Israel to come in and punish Israel. That doesn't make sense, God. I don't, I don't like that. Because he continues to call God something. I, it's, it's interesting through this book that he doesn't ever rebuke Habakkuk. Because he is now called God idle twice. As in, God doesn't care. And he is inactive. So he begins to say all of these things about them that they're evil. They bring up their enemies, they drag them out with hooks, they rejoice and they're glad. Um, They sacrifice, they live in luxury, their food is rich, and they keep on emptying their net and mercilessly killing nations forever. What he's saying is, God, how on earth can you say you're going to do that and still be good? That doesn't make any sense at all. See, the prophet is stuck looking at the problems around him. And and God's plan, because God told him his plan, God's plan makes no sense to him. You find it interesting too, don't you? You remember what he told him? He said, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Then he tells him, and guess what? He doesn't believe. Right? If God says, I'm going to tell you this, but before, you, before I tell you this, you're not going to believe me. And then he tells him, and he doesn't believe. Right? And so he gets stuck because God's plan doesn't make sense because he isn't looking beyond his own predicament. He isn't looking beyond his own feelings To try to understand what God is doing. See, when we get stuck, mired in our own issues, or the issues of the world around us, only staring at the problems, it will bring us to a place where we question God's power, God's wisdom, or God's goodness. What we all know to be true is that difficulties, hardship, tragedies, and even evil are common and they will affect All of us at any given point in our lives. Maybe you're even dealing with something this morning. However, if you want to walk in triumph and not simply in trouble, you may not get a change of your circumstances, but what you actually need is the change of perspective. See, I can't promise you that the troubles of this world will go away. In fact, I can promise you that they probably will not. But I can promise you this. While the troubles of this world may not go away, if your perspective can change, you can handle the troubles of this world in a different way. Because looking to the Creator means gaining real perspective. Gaining real perspective. Look at chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk, he says, okay, I'm going to take my stand. I'm going to go stand on the watch post, and I, the watchtower. And I'm sure you know what the watch post or the watch tower is. It was, they were placed throughout the kingdoms of that time. And it would be a very high stone tower that would give you perspective from all directions so that you could see an enemy that was coming. So you could see from afar off and then you could signal back to the city to let them know that someone was coming so that they could get prepared. And so Habakkuk says, I'm going to go to the watchtower and I'm going to be prepared for what God is going to do and I'm going to seek to see what God has said. He was struggling because he said repeatedly, he felt like evil and and, and tragedy were all around him and God was doing Nothing about all of this evil, and he was determined to change his view about what God had said or what what God was going to do. He had determined, he said, I don't understand this, God, this doesn't make sense to me. But then he went up on the watchtower to get a different perspective, to look out and see what God was going to do in the future. But notice he says in verse one, even from the beginning, I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say. To me, he was willing to wait and to seek the Lord to understand. He wanted to hear from God. And then God speaks again. He says, And the Lord answered me write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It, hasten, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, Wait for it, it will surely come and it will not delay so God tells Habakkuk, look, I get it that you don't understand I get it that you don't you don't grasp fully my plan and, and what I'm doing but I promise you what I'm going to do it's going to happen even though you don't see it now if you'll just wait on me, I promise you it's coming See maybe you're struggling this morning and dealing with an issue and while I said God may not remove you from The problems of your life, if you can get a new perspective about God and His plan, God says, look, I promise you, it may hurt now, but it will eventually subside. I will eventually deliver you. It may not happen in your time, but it will always happen according to His perfect will. He says, wait on it. It has its appointed time. It's His perfect timing, His perfect will. Then verse 4 which you may be familiar with, but maybe not from here, and maybe not knowing that it came from the book of Habakkuk. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, we misquote this verse uh, decently often from the Old Testament because it does not say the righteous shall live by faith. It says the righteous shall live by his faith. It's distinguishing between the Babylonians and those who follow God. Okay? You think about it the way Habakkuk would have understood it. it. It's distinguishing between the evil of the Babylonians and those who are righteous. See, those who are evil, their soul is puffed up. puffed up. It is not upright within them. Upright or righteous. It is not righteous within them. But the righteous, they will live by their faith. By their faith, how? See, this is really the theme of the entire book of Habakkuk. The entire book of Habakkuk. Is basically that explanations may not always make sense. God's plan may not always be sensible to us. But the righteous do not live by what we can see. We live according to our faith in God and God alone. Even in the face of things that may seem senseless. See, God tells Habakkuk, I know you don't see it. I know you don't understand it. And I know you're struggling to wait for it. But just remember... The righteous live by faith. The righteous live by their trust in me. The righteous live not by what they can see, but by who they know. So he says, the righteous shall live by his faith. And you notice this, God's still answering. um, And Habakkuk actually hasn't received an answer to his question yet. He's saying, why God? What are you doing God? How is this going to help God? And God never answers his question. And so he says in verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all uh, as his own all peoples. So God tells him that, yeah, the Babylonians are bad. They're bad people, and they're going to do bad things. Evil is going to exist. And he says, It's he's never at rest. Greed is as wide as Sheol. It never has enough. He gathers for himself nations, collects as his own all peoples. He's saying... Evil is around. Bad things and tragedy abound. So Habakkuk responds again. He responds in verse 6 by saying, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say... Now, I'm not going to go through all these other than to tell you this. That beginning in verse 6 all the way to verse 19... He continually says, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. This is Habakkuk declaring curses against the Babylonians and all those who are evil and live like them. So he's saying, woe to them who heaps up what is not his own. Um, I will not your debtors, woe to him, verse 9, who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink to pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is evil upon evil upon evil. And then he says in verse 18, what prophet is an idol? So he begins to declare to them a curse that they're idolaters. They don't worship the true and living God. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. This is verse 18. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So he declares over and over again, woe to you, woe to you. See, you're starting to see a shift in what Habakkuk believes. See, before he was looking at his problem and saying, Why, God? Why are you letting this happen? And then God says, Well, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to bring reproof and correction upon you. But then God, uh, uh, Habakkuk says, Well, why would you do that, God? They're evil. And God says, Look, I'm going to punish them too. You just have to wait. You have to be patient and you have to wait on my plan. And so Habakkuk, in his faith, because God tells him the righteous live by their faith, He says, I'm going to do this. So Habakkuk begins to say, hey, Babylon, I know you're about to do this, but guess what, your time's coming. That's what, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He says, it's about to happen. But then we see kind of the the major shift of Habakkuk's thoughts. The major shift of Habakkuk's perspective. Remember, um, first, when you're staring at your problem, you can't discern God's purpose. You can't discern what he's doing. But then when you look at the Creator and you you see who He is and and you think about what He has done and what He is going to do, you can gain perspective. And therefore, at the end of chapter 2 and verse 20, Habakkuk says, But the Lord, all these other things are accursed, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This is Habakkuk saying, While I don't understand everything going on, I know God is ultimately in control. He has not left His throne. He alone is worthy of worship, regardless of the circumstances. No matter how bad it gets in this world, He has not left His throne. Psalm 29, verse 10. Psalm 29, verse 10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. That is the psalmist saying that the Lord was seated on his throne when the flood occurred. The flood, which the, the Noadic flood, uh, Noah's flood, you know, that killed millions upon millions of people, uh, changed the world forever and only allowed eight people to survive that flood. And in that horrible, cataclysmic tragedy, the psalmist says that God was seated on His throne, which means it didn't tax Him in the least. He was completely in control. It didn't take Him by surprise. He was entirely and utterly sovereign in that moment. See, this means during the most horrific act of judgment in the history of the world, nothing was outside of God's sovereign rule. See, it can be overwhelming when we look at the news we see constant things, especially nowadays, because something can happen all the way across the world, and we know about it in five seconds on Twitter. Things can happen instantaneously, and we're flooded with, oh, this is happening, and this is happening, and this is, oh, this is tragic, and this is terrible, and this is terrible. You know that no matter how terrible it gets, God is still on His throne. If you are in Christ, you should be aware, but you should never be afraid. Because of who you are, because the Righteous live by their faith in Him. The righteous live by what they know about Him. And when we come to the place where we can submit to God's complete lordship and control over the affairs of humanity and the inner workings of our own lives, not questioning His goodness, not questioning His power, not questioning His wisdom, then we can begin to embrace We can embrace His sovereign work in our lives. And embracing God's work means finding lasting peace. Embracing God's work means finding lasting peace. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 3, it begins with a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionoth. Okay, so it begins like a psalm, which reaffirms what I said at the beginning that he most likely had something to do with temple worship because at the end if you look at verse 19 to the choir master with and and the Hebrew actually says with my stringed instruments. So so Habakkuk apparently was a was a, a band member. He he played some sort of stringed instrument and he said I wrote this uh to be played with stringed instruments. It's like a musician, right? If y'all gonna sing this remember how I wrote it. This is my song so play it the way I wrote it. He says A prayer of the prophet. Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now he says, I have heard the report of you. So it's Habakkuk. I mean, he's a he's an Israelite, he's a Hebrew. He he knows what God has done throughout history, and that's what he's talking about. I've heard the report of you. I, I know who you are. I've heard this is his way of saying, now, Lord, I've heard the stories. I've heard the stories. And he says, And your work, O Lord, do I fear. Literally in Hebrew, Your work, O Lord, I am in awe of. I am in awe of. Then he says this, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's crying out, In the words of O.S. Hawkins, he's looking at God and saying, God, I've heard the stories, I've heard what you've done. Lord, do it again. God, do it again for your people. Do it again for your children. He says, I I know things are bad, but things have been bad before. Things have been bad since Genesis chapter 3. Things have been bad, but Lord, I remember now of all you have miraculously done, and God, I want you to do it again. God, act. God, move. See, our cry this morning is God's people. Regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of what's happened in the past, regardless of any of those things, our cry should be this. Lord, it's not that it's never been this bad before. Lord, it's always been bad, but you have always acted on behalf of your people. Lord, do it again. In, at Eastwood Baptist Church, the cry of our heart should be, Lord, you've moved in the past. We know you've done amazing things. We have seen people get saved. And half the people in this room walked the aisle right here and gave their life to Christ. We have seen that happen. God, we've seen things move. We have seen those baptism waters troubled every single Sunday. God, I know it may look bad now, but Lord, do it again for your people. And that's what he's crying out. You want to know why? Because then he starts in in verse three. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays, like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at its heels. Then you look down further in verse. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped a sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, and the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted up its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. Are you hearing some allusions to things in the Old Testament? He's talking about when the children of Israel left Egypt, they went to Taman and Paran. That's Mount Sinai. They went through there, and then he rose up the waters and broke them forth from the deep. When? When he parted the Red Sea, and uh, Egypt and uh, Pharaoh's armies were destroyed because of what God did. See, both of those times, their backs were against the wall in Egypt. And what did he do? He brought pay, plagues and pestilence. And he delivered God's people miraculously in the midst of a difficult circumstance. Then when their backs were pressed against the wall and Pharaoh was coming, bearing down on them, they had desert on one side, mountains on the other, Pharaoh in front uh, behind them and a sea in front of them. And then God did something miraculous and he parted the Red Sea. Then on top of that, he wiped out Pharaoh's army in one fell swoop. Then it says, when Joshua and the children of Israel were fighting against Ai and they couldn't do it, he, Joshua prayed and he asked God to keep the sun in the sky for just a little bit longer, and he did. And that's what he says here in verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. He's referring to all the amazing things that God did in the Exodus. Why? Because he's saying, regardless of how bad it is, Just remember, it was really bad for the children of Israel before. It was really bad for us before. And God, in His mercy and His grace, in His power and in His wisdom, He delivered when we looked and said, there is no way God made a way. You may look at it now and say, it's overwhelming. When we tell people about Jesus, they don't want to hear they don't want to hear from us. This culture doesn't want to hear anything. I can tell you this. If you will open your mouth and share the gospel, people may turn you down, people may not listen to you, but I promise you this, God still saves people. He will make a way. Even when we look at it and say, oh, I don't know, I don't know if churches are, are, are going down uh, more and more and baptism rates are going down and salvations are going down. I just don't think we can ever move. He parted a Red Sea. He can bring people to himself. So what do we cry? We cry what Habakkuk cried. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. So he cries out and says, this is what God has done. All the way through to verse 15. Then in verse 16 he says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bone, my legs tremble beneath me. Now, He's saying all that because he has come to accept what God has said. The Babylonians are coming to wipe you out. The Babylonians are coming. He's come to accept that. That's why he says, I'm trembling. I'm afraid. I mean, Lord, this is not going to be fun. I know this isn't going to be fun. But then look at what he says next. Verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He says, Lord, I know it's about to get ugly for us. But I'm going to quietly wait for you to fulfill your promise to ultimately punish the Babylonians. So why is that so important? Because of the verses that Brother Barry read at the very beginning. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Do You realize he's describing complete famine, complete and utter economic destruction. There is no fruit There are no vegetables. uh, There are no animals. Everything is gone. People are starving. They are outrageously destitute. But He went from staring at his problem to staring at his creator. And when he stared at his creator, it changed his perspective completely. And when he changed his perspective completely, even in the midst of difficulty, hear me church, even in the midst of what seems like the culture is falling apart and everything around us is falling down and sin is rampant and evil, it goes unchecked. What does he say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. See, the Lord is my strength. You and I do not have the ability to do this on our own. We do not have the ability to simply look at the world and say, Oh, everything's going to be great. We need the Lord to give us strength. We need the Lord to be our strength. If you're trying to do this on your own, you will fail every day. Time And Habakkuk recognized, I might have the right perspective, but in the end, I need the right foundation. It's got to be his strength and not mine. See, maybe you're questioning God this morning. Or maybe uh, you've moved beyond questioning and you're simply frustrated with him this morning. Or maybe you're doubting his goodness, or his power, or his wisdom, or his will for your life. Cry out to the Lord this morning. For mercy, for grace, to gain a new perspective, to gain his perspective. And like Habakkuk, maybe you have become overwhelmed because you spend all of your time and your energy looking at your problems, looking at all the problems of this world, looking at the storm around you. And maybe you need to gain a new perspective. Take your eyes off the storm and put your eyes on the one who controls the storm. Put your eyes on the one who created it all. And when you do this, you'll find peace. You'll find comfort in the face of the one you know does all things for his glory and for your good. You may not understand it. You may not get it. And I am not even saying it doesn't hurt. You're crazy if you say these things don't hurt. But we rest in the promise, the New Testament promise that we know that He works all things together for good to those who love Him and those who are called according to His purposes. Those things may not be good, but He will work them for your good and for His glory. During this time of response here in a minute, cry out to God. Because He is your strength alone. Cry out to God for His ability, for the ability to gain an eternal perspective. To look at these problems and these issues the way God does. They are but, as the Apostle Paul says, momentary and light afflictions. And then, and only then, can you have the faith, even through pain and difficulty, to embrace God's good and perfect work. Or maybe this morning you're in the midst of a storm. You can't escape it. It's overwhelming, and you are alone, and you have no one to turn to. You're questioning, you're doubting, you're frustrated, and you're struggling to find hope. I want to introduce you this morning to one who has already been through the greatest storm anybody on earth has ever been through. And he did it voluntarily for you. He did it voluntarily for you. See, all the struggles and difficulties that you may be facing in this life right now pale in comparison to the fact that Jesus did absolutely nothing wrong and he still died in your place. He died for you and he rose from the dead. And because of that, you can have faith and you can have eternal life because of what Jesus has done for you. You will struggle to understand life you will struggle to do it. Guess what? Believers struggle to understand things and struggle to understand pain and tragedy and all that. The difference is this. All of us struggle to understand pain and tragedy, but only those who are in Christ. We may, miss, we may not understand the pain and the tragedy, but we have faith in the one who controls it all. Amen. And you can have that this morning too by simply turning from your sin and placing your faith in him. He won't take away the pain, but he will be with you in the midst of the storm. If you can take your eyes off the problem, look at the Creator and trust in Him. Why? Because the righteous live by their faith.